1: Uh, Thank you for joining me. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for hosting me. Um, So you've written like um, a bunch of books about modern Turkish politics and quite specifically focused on uh, Prime Minister and President Erdogan. Uh, So I'd like to know how has he changed over the time you've been studying and how has your view of him developed? That's correct. Indeed, I've followed uh,
0: the career of Turkish uh, President uh, Erdogan for just about two decades now i got hired after my phd at yale by the washington institute in 2002 september to be precise erdogan's party justice and development known as akp came to power in november that year just two months after i took my um, new job and uh, just about two decades later uh, uh, i have been following his career over the years of course uh, erdogan has changed i think and my analysis of erdogan has moved along with that there was a time uh, during the first decade of erdogan in power when uh, his uh, signal uh, achievement was uh, quite phenomenal economic growth, improvement of services, and I gave him credit for that. I wrote an entire book devoted to that called The Rise of Turkey. Uh, This was about the dramatic economic transformation that Erdogan delivered. But I was uh, always, I think, uh, uh, quite skeptical of Erdogan's uh, political agenda at home and internationally. Uh, Indeed, there was a time when I was alone in the analytical community, A lot of people focus simply on the economic part of the story and ignore the political part of it. So I have also written on the political part of Erdogan's legacy, including the new Sultan, where I have looked at his populist and nativist policies at home. Uh, Now, nearly two decades into his rule in Turkey as prime minister first and then president, and then as executive style president, Erdogan has not only increased and consolidated his political powers, but I think he's very different than where he started. You know, uh, when he started, his vision, uh, at least uh, statedly, was uh, taking Turkey into the EU, making it a liberal democracy. Uh, now, not only is Turkey quite far away from that vision, but I think increasingly Erdogan is uh, um, has gone, in my view, over the, uh, the, the height of his popularity domestically. Uh, and regardless of uh, what he does, it doesn't look like he's going to be able to build that base that uh, so adoringly loved him and supported him. And I think, Luke, what it goes down to is really the economy, which is Erdogan's uh, Achilles heel. He built a base that loved him, that at one time made up just about half of the electorate, primarily because it delivered phenomenal economic growth. He increased uh, access to the pie, improved services. A factor that I love most from uh, my first uh, book on uh, the uh, Erdogan years in Turkey, uh, The Rise of Turkey, is that when Erdogan came to power, infant mortality rate in Turkey was comparable to pre-war Syria. That's pre-war Syria. Now it is comparable to Spain. So the fact that uh, he has improved access to services, living standards is the main reason why the base loved him. And and this is a key reason why the base is now abandoning him. The Turkish economy went into recession in 2018. It's the the key reason why Erdogan lost elections for mayor elections for Istanbul, Ankara, other big cities in 2019. The economy has exited recession. But it's only showing signs of slow growth and there are other problems that compound erdogan's ability to rebuild his base which i can elaborate uh the most significant of one of course is demographic trends that, that are working against him but overall i think erdogan is in the autumn of his political career it's going to be hard for him to build this amazing popularity that he once enjoyed uh and so i, I, I think that we're witnessing a new era in erdogan's uh, political career uh, he may have gone through the height of his popularity. And the issue now, of course, how does he deal with uh, lower levels of popularity and support and yet maintain control over a country that has robust and
1: old democratic traditions? So I think you're completely right to highlight the economy as sort of his great achievement and he, and his decline in popularity. It tracks pretty nicely with the decline in value of the Turkish lira. You can kind of map them together, I think. However, I don't think Erdogan's appeal is simply economic. There's a, I think there's also a strong identitarian side to why his supporters are so loyal. So do you see that changing as well, or is that as solid as ever? That's
0: correct. I think Erdogan has two sides. Uh, there's a bright side, Erdogan who delivered growth, improved access to services, improved living standards. But there's also a darker side of Erdogan, the nativist populist leader. Indeed, I believe Erdogan is among the inventors of nativist populism politics globally, together with perhaps Hungarian leader Orban, a model that has been copied effectively by other leaders in Europe and beyond. The idea that, you know, only voters for a specific leader are the true children of the country and everybody else is contaminated in coats, liberals, coats, uh, ex- imported or working for foreigners or people. Uh, uh, Whatever adjective you want to use, that was Erdogan's brand, especially in the second decade of his his, uh, reign in Turkey, starting from around 2010 up to this day, uh, that uh, he has created this imagery that only those who vote for his AKP are true Turks and good Muslims. And anybody else uh, who does not do so is neither a true Turk or a good Muslim. And I think that kind of nativist rhetoric has been copied by other leaders. But there's also another element to Erdogan's nativist populism that is anti-elitism. Erdoğan, again like nativist populist leaders globally, has blamed the country's elites for its problems and said that he would solve them. There was a time when this elitism was anti-elitism was believable. Uh, The first decade of Erdoğan years. Now we have to see things in comparative perspective. Uh, Before Erdoğan came to power in 1990s, Turkey went through arguably one of its worst decades. A decade marked by three economic crises, one of which was Turkey's worst in its modern history. fighting against the PKK that resulted in massive human rights violations and and huge uh, material uh, uh, costs to the country, of course. And of course, corruption of the elites. Uh, uh, The economy collapsed as a result of that mismanagement uh, of the economy, uh, as, as well as figuring that in. And so what brought Erdogan to power was the decade in which Turkey's political elites completely went bankrupt. So it was Uh, believable when Erdogan said that the country's problems should be blamed on its 20th century Kemalist elites. But that message no more sells. That's where I think Erdogan's nativist populism has kind of run into a wall. There was a time when uh, people who remember 20th century Turkey could relate to Erdogan's message that he shouldn't be blamed for problems regarding Kurdish issue, corruption, economic mismanagement. 20 years into Erdogan rule, even the most ardent Erdogan supporters don't buy that or can't buy that because guess what? Uh, for every uh, citizen in Turkey, Erdogan owns Turkey's problems. Uh, these problems are back from the Kurdish issue to corruption, to economic mismanagement, to economic crisis. And so when he uh, goes around and says, hey, I'm not to blame for these issues, I think even the most diehard Erdogan fan probably takes us with a pinch of salt. So I wonder if there's a point where nativist populist tactics kind of reach a saturation point because the anti-elitist component of it, of these policies don't work. And on top of it, I wonder if there's also a place where the nativist part of the policy reaches a saturation point. Here's how it goes. Erdogan has been very good about demonizing, brutalizing, and cracking down on demographics unlikely to vote for him. But unlike, let's say Trump, who went after all the groups at the same time, Erdogan went after these groups methodically. He picked one, secularists, uh, who I would say constitute about a quarter of Turkey's population, and by secularists I don't mean secular secularists, as in those who want to have no religion in education or or uh, a government or public policy. About a quarter of Turkey's population, he went after this group, and he made everybody else feel like they were his allies, and that uh, so he had support of liberals, socialists, Kurdish nationalists, uh, social democrats in this endeavor. Um, but once he locked up secularists in the infamous Ergenekon case with help from the Gulen movement, Erdogan moved on to demonize other groups. And uh and went to liberals, social democrats, and leftists. Uh, but if you add these groups up, together with Kurdish nationalists and Alivis, uh, Alivis being a liberal branch of Islam in Turkey, similar to the Unitarian Church in Christianity, uh, the Alevis constitute about 10-15% of Turkey. Once you add these groups up, secularists, social democrats, leftists, liberals, all these Kurdish nationalists, you get over half of Turkey's population. That's why I think, yes, Erdogan has a base that loves him, but Erdogan has also built a constituency, a majority that hates him. And uh, because of the economy collapsing, uh, many centrist voters who would have typically voted for, uh, not based on ideology, but on pocketbook, are now abandoning the Erdogan camp. So I think he's got a huge problem. Uh, uh, neither his nativist populist, elitist politics are working, uh, nor the economy is delivering. And there's no way Erdogan can sustain a majority, uh, uh, sustain a plurality, let alone a majority in this environment. So we're at a turning point regarding Erdogan's career. Uh, you could argue that he built a base that loves him and that that was uh, at times nearing a majority he had the, the, that supported him. And he was able to govern in the first decade of his uh his reign in Turkey, and then in the second decade, control and oppress the rest of the population by relying on this slim majority, definitely a plurality that supported him. Now it's a minority that backs him and he has to oppress the majority by relying on minority support. That has never happened in Turkey. Turkey has been a democracy since 1950, it just doesn't work. So when I put it together, I say, this is not a sustainable model Given Turkey's democratic resilience and traditions. And I just don't see how this will work out for Erdogan going forward.
1: So I think I I agree with all of that. I mean, it's it's interesting. I meet businessmen here in Istanbul who've been on a, a bit of a political journey over the last kind of five years who were quite keen supporters of Erdogan back in, say, 2015 and made their money in the 2010s, but have slowly seen their businesses kind of fade and pause and quite a lot of these people are now abstaining or actively voting against it. I I think it's reasonable to suggest that there's a majority of voters in Turkey that could be against Erdogan, but that's not quite the same thing as getting an opposition candidate over the line. Uh, in your book you argue that um, his survival is probable. Explain why you think he's going to continue despite Um, not having a majority of the population behind him anymore.
0: So uh, typically, Luke, when Turkish presidents or leaders uh, leave office, uh, they retire to the Mediterranean or a nice villa in Istanbul's Anatolian side and take up uh, fun hobbies such as painting. I don't think that's an option Erdogan is going to be given if he ever loses elections. That's because he has stepped on so many toes, brutalized so many people, and in the Erdogan case... So many people died in jail while they were waiting to see a judge that it's almost certain. And uh, given that there are corruption allegations against him and his family, it's almost certain at this stage that if Erdogan ever loses power or is pulled from power, he'll be uh, uh, both prosecuted and potentially persecuted. And he knows that. So I think he has decided that losing elections is not an option, and he'll cling onto power by hook or by crook. We just uh, 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 talked about how Erdogan has lost plurality, uh, uh, leave alone, of course, majority support, and he has to rely on a minority uh, to govern the uh, oppress. in this case, unfortunately, the rest of the population. So it's almost, he's relying on a third of the population to control and oppress two thirds of the population, not a sustainable model, unless Erdogan unleashes new and unforeseen amounts of ideological and political oppression of the opposition. So I think his game plan, uh, plan going forward is going to include a lot more oppression than we have seen, but also some fine political gerrymandering, such as establishing new electoral thresholds that would benefit his allies and parties that support him in the elections, while undermining uh, electra, uh, representation of support parties that oppose him. But these had to be so gerrymandered and so hocus pocus. I don't know that it works. So Erdogan has an ally, a small Turkish nationalist faction called MHP. Uh, and he also has a number of smaller parties that oppose him. So if you're setting up thresholds that benefit one smaller party while undermining support and representation of other smaller parties, that does look hocus-pocus. I don't know that these things work in Turkey. You know, I think Turkey, one of the things that, lessons and takeaways of Erdogan years in Turkey, I guess, is that uh, it, uh, opposite of the lesson of Iraq and Afghanistan, where the takeaway would be, it takes a really long time to build a democracy, I guess the lesson of Turkey under Erdogan is that it also takes a really long time to kill one. So is Erdogan autocratic? Yes. Is Turkey a dictatorship? No. I think that uh, one of the fascinating parts of studying Turkey for me is that I believe if countries could be vegetables, Turkey would be the analytical onion. What what is the analytical onion? It doesn't have a core. It defies Manichaean binarisms and broad generalizations. So Turkey is neither a democracy nor a dictatorship. It's a democracy that has fallen under an autocrat. And in this alignment, democratic traditions are so robust and memory is so uh, thick and the democracy is so resilient that, you know, when you try to do hocus pocus and gerrymander tactics, uh, electorate simply doesn't buy these things. It happened in Istanbul. Erdogan lost elections for mayor in 2019 by a very narrow margin. He said, oh, I could repeat the elections and I control all the institutions and I could win the second round. Guess what? The electorate humbled him in the second round. This time his candidate lost the elections by a margin of nearly 1 million votes compared to 13,000. Very significant margin, of course, in a city of 15 million people. So he's going to have problems. I think he's going to uh, move the goalposts further for the opposition, gerrymander the electoral system. Don't know that it will work. So I think the only way he can go forward, he might set up fake opposition parties to steal votes from the opposition, support these parties so they look like they're genuine. But nothing will work, in my view, short of robust economic growth. And robust economic growth in Turkey doesn't mean 4%. Turkey is a young and dynamic population. For economy, economic growth to feel like prosperity has come back, it has to grow close to double digits. I don't know if that's deliverable. If it is, of course, Erdogan can hope to rebuild his base. So I think it, even by the standards of Erdogan years of the last decade, where Turkey has been in political crisis between the supporters and opponents and increased amount of oppression, I would say Bakulov, Uh, buckle up for the next part of the ride, it's going to be really rough. Uh, This leader who realizes he can't fall from power will do everything to stay in charge by hook or by crook, but then Turkey's democratic resilience and traditions will kick back. I agree with you on one point, though. There is yet no one leader that unifies the opposition, and that's, for the moment, Erdogan's strength.
1: Um, I have a a lot of thoughts based on what you've just said. Of course, the other other key of Erdogan's survival is his continued stranglehold over the media. I mean, we've recently seen these efforts to attempt to get foreign money out of media, which just looks like a, a stick to, to beat the last few remaining independent media institutions in Turkey. Um, but I, w- I want to move on and talk about the mayoral elections because th- those were fascinating because they really... Um, Erdogan had built up this sort of legend in this sort of the mind of the opposition of being unbeatable, almost like... Um, was, could, pulled off magic tricks every single time and to, to be defeated so thoroughly in both Istanbul and Ankara was quite dramatic um, you, in your book, you write about uh, Mayor Ekrami Momolo as a possible candidate to, to, to take on Erdogan in, in the next presidential election uh, and you talk about his kind of distinctive style of politics as possibly being um, an interesting counterpoint to Erdogan's style, could you, um, could you walk me through that?
0: Absolutely. Uh, As you said, Erdogan's brand for a very long time was good governance and invincible. You know, he delivered good governance, uh, especially regarding the economy, an invincible politician because you just could not defeat him. You know, the opposition ran its best campaigns. Erdogan defeated the the second, uh, uh, the the main opposition party, Republican People's Party, CHP, at times by a margin of 20 percent points. That's huge. And that's when elections were free and the race was fair. Now the race is no more fair. I think Erdogan does control uh, almost the entire uh, spectrum of conventional media. So as you argued, uh, uh, you know these efforts have now turned into controlling new forms of media. I don't know if it will be successful uh, because, uh, as I said, uh, democratic traditions really matter, and uh, uh, an autocratic leader simply sh- cannot shut down a democracy as old as Turkey. Turkey has held elections longer than has uh, had sp- Spain has, and so I think. Uh, memory and resilience in terms of democratic tradition is really important to challenge Erdogan. But the issue is, can some leader, can one leader uh, mobilize this resilience and memory and turn it into action and uh, vote Erdogan out? Until recently, that didn't look likely. But uh, Istanbul Mayor Olu, who won uh, Istanbul, of course, from Erdogan's party, uh, 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 representing the opposition, I think, uh, and others, uh, Ankara Mayor as well, uh, I think they did a fantastic job. And I wonder if this is also showing the path forward for uh, politicians challenging nativist populist leaders elsewhere. Uh, For a very long time, Turkey's opposition fought Erdogan on uh, using the same nativist populist rhetoric to attack him and his base. That didn't work. Opposition lost uh, by margins of, you know, uh, 20 percent points and even bigger. Uh, Imam Ola and others embraced a new tactic uh, labeled radical love. It does not It's not what it sounds like <laughs> politically. Basically, it means uh, ignore the populist leader and love the base that votes for him. And I think that's the only way you can defeat a, a native populist leader, not by fighting him and his base, embracing his base but ignoring him. Although Erdogan wanted to pull the opposition mayor candidates into a mud race, a slinging race, uh, opposition never fell for it. Uh, and uh, instead, the uh, position leaders reached out to Erdogan's base. Imamul spent more time in Istanbul's conservative, lower middle and working class neighborhoods that typically vote for Erdogan than in uh, middle class and, and liberal neighborhoods. Um, uh, and uh, model has, I think, been copied by other mayors elsewhere. So I think Imamul is quite a significant challenger to Erdogan at this stage. Though so the issue, of course, is Imamoglu is Istanbul's mayor, uh, which is a very important post in Turkey. I think being a successful mayor in Turkey is the equivalent of being a successful governor of a state in the U.S. or a senator. Uh, if you do your job well, it makes you presidential material. Mm-hmm. So, if a mayor runs Istanbul efficiently, delivers services well, he will rise in the eyes of the electorate. Enter Erdogan's uh, or Turkey's uh, political system, where local governments rely on central government for two-thirds of their budget. So, I think what Erdogan has been doing is, uh, you know, squeezing. Uh, a uh, lifeline for Imam Olu by uh, eliminating funding for his projects. And to the extent that Imam Olu can bypass these uh, uh, limitations and deliver good governance and 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 run Istanbul well, I think he's going to rise in the eyes of the public. Uh, but the others who could ro- fill that role, I think Ankara Maryováš, who is mm-hmm. slightly more centrist than Imam Olu in his politics, comes from a nationalist background. Uh, he hails from MHP, Nationalist Action Party is therefore kind of probably uh, more appealing to the right, uh, could be another candidate. He's also been running Ankara quite well. And I would also throw a third candidate, and that's Aksh Meral Akshaner, the leader of E-Party. Uh, uh, in Turkish, that, um, uh, in English, that would be good party. Mm-hmm. E-Party is uh, uh, also comes from the Turkish nationalist tradition. That's quite important. Uh, so it's a right-wing party. Why is that important? Uh, between the time it became a multi-party democracy in 1950 and today, excluding years spent under military rule, totaling four, Turkey has had democratically elected governments uh, for the last 67 years. Guess of those 67 years, uh, uh, how many uh, years were spent under left-wing-led governments? Not even years, 17 months.
1: Oh, oh, well, yes, it's it's not very long. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. Uh,
0: So uh, basically, there's a fact, Turkey is a right-wing country. And Erdogan's opposition has to have a right-wing component to it to attract right-wing voters and have mainstream legitimacy interaction. She comes from the right. Uh, she's a practicing Muslim, but also secular. So she checks a lot of boxes. She's Anatolian. Uh, she doesn't represent the Istanbul elite necessarily in the eyes of the electorate. That was also Erdogan's brand when he came to power. So I would look at Imam uh, uh, Imamoglu and Yavash, uh, a leader of uh, MHP, Akshener, obviously, She split up from uh, the Turkish nationalist ally of Erdogan and set up her own party. And the party has been uh, increasing support very, uh, I would say, uh, gradually, but also persistently. uh, Polls show her party to be at around 14, 15 percent. I would say uh, she's a a politician to watch. Imam Imam Olu, of course, is an important politician to watch, because if you run Istanbul well in Turkey, you become presidential material. And Ankara Miryavash, I guess, because of his uh, deliverance of good services and good performance. So I think uh, I wouldn't rule out the game of democracy to be over in Turkey. There are pessimists who look at it and say, oh, come on, it doesn't matter anymore. Elections are not fair. Elections will not be fair, but they'll be free the day of elections. Again, uh, taking into account the lessons of Istanbul, repeat race, right? Erdogan canceled the first uh, 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 election in Istanbul, in which his candidate lost by a margin of 13,000 votes, saying, I control the race, I control electoral bodies, I control the media, I'll win it. In the second round, uh, the electorate humbled him, he lost by 800,000 votes, nearly 1 million vote margin. It's a huge margin, how did it happen? A lot of people who voted for him in the first round said, no, that's not right, you lost it. This is a democracy, you gotta respect it. They stepped down, but also the opposition organized an amazing campaign to prevent rigging, Mm -hmm. uh, which could not happen, let's say in Putin's Russia, uh, Hundred thousand volunteers descended onto ballot stations. Uh, they tally the votes. Uh, you know, collated them into PDF files, and they slept on top of ballot boxes to prevent rigging. So again, using analogies, I get this question a lot. People say, "Is Turkey like Russia? Is Erdogan like Putin?" I think Erdogan has a political man crush on Putin. You know, after the March elections, when his party lost, a friend said. Putin mm-hmm. called Erdogan, what do you think he told him? Did he congratulate him? I said, no, of course, Putin called Erdogan to say, how do you lose elections? It doesn't happen in my system. So Turkey is not like Russia. No, I think I, your I think comparison... If you if want to... Um, con-
1: Sorry. <laughs> no, please go ahead. No, I think your comparison with Viktor Orban in Hungary is a much better one. Um, yeah, I think so. I would say if you're going to compare Turkey
0: to a country, it's Hungary and Poland, right? Where uh, similarly, nativist populist theaters have taken over democracies. These countries are democracies that have fallen under autocrats. But opposition is resilient. And uh, just as it happened in Turkey, where opposition took Istanbul Ankara uh, from uh, the the autocratic leader in Hungary and Poland too, opposition has done similar uh, achievements, taking Budapest and Warsaw from those countries,
1: uh, uh, similarly autocratic leaders. The other thing that's similar, and I would include Israel in this, is you're starting to see quite odd coalitions of not sort of natural allies getting together to remove autocratic leaders. I mean, again, Israel is the obvious comparison here, where people on complete opposite ends of the spectrum were able to get together. And it, it makes the, the possibility of, say, for example, Kurdish nationalist parties and Turkish nationalist parties kind of get like Mehepe and Hedepe continuing to work together, even though there are some pretty irreconcilable differences between the two parties. That's correct.
0: I think that the only way for the opposition to defeat Erdogan is if it's three uh, key components stay together. Uh, The the central wing of the opposition is CHP, Republican People's Party, main opposition party. They're not going anywhere. The issue is whether the two wings of the opposition bloc will stay together. One wing of the opposition bloc is pro-Kurdish liberal alliance, HDP, People's Democracy Party. The other wing is aktionaires, Turkish nationalist, E-party, Good Party. I think Erdogan's game is to demonize the HDP in the run-up to the elections, you know, label them as quote-unquote terrorists in order not to push the HDP, but the uh, actioners E party out of the electoral alliance just by demonstrating to her base that their party is in coalition with quote-unquote terrorists. So I see Erdogan's attacks on HDP, court case to ban the HDP, a constant you know, stigmatization of that party, an effort to push auctionaires e-party out of the opposition block. Here's the
1: fact. Sorry, I think you're right, but I think there might be another motivation there as well. I mean, that if if, again, one of the things you point out in your book is that Erdogan's not trying to win by 60%, right? He's trying to win by 1%. And I think if you close down HDP, which seems to be the direction they want to go, you might get a couple of thousand Kurdish voters or so who decide not to vote and it's more about not giving Kurdish voters someone who they can support and that would just like reduce the opposition a little bit. Do you think that's do you think that's wrong or do you think that's part of it?
0: No, I, I think that uh, Erdogan's, and there are different views on this, I don't think that Erdogan will shut down HTT for the elections. I think that he knows that that will cost conservative Kurdish voters. Remember Turkey's uh, Kurdish yeah, okay, community yeah, yeah. about about 18, 20% of Turkey's population is split almost three ways in blocks of descending order. The largest block votes for HDP, traditionally leftist. The second largest block votes for Erdogan, conservative, mostly lives in big cities in the West. And the third block, smallest, I guess, are Kurds who are integrated or feel that they have hyphenated identities and do not vote based on ethnic identity. So of these blocks, the second block voting for Erdogan loves Erdogan, but they'll be offended if Erdogan shuts down a Kurdish party just because it's the Kurdish party. And I think mm-hmm. he knows that. So I think Erdogan's game is more about demonizing HDP, kind of keeping the sort of democles dangling on the HDP's head, labeling and stigmatizing the party as quote-unquote terrorist, in order to force Actioner to jettison herself out of the opposition bloc. Here's the fact. If there's a two-way race, as was the case in Istanbul in 2019, Erdogan won't win. There's no way. Uh, when you put numbers together, there's no way you can get to 50%. I think one of his gravest mistakes to date, political uh, mistakes, that is, was the switch to presidential system, yep, which eliminated a multi, multi-party multi race and put in place instead a two-way race that not only uh, you know encouraged the opposition to unify, but also means that Erdogan has to get 50. And it's almost impossible for him to do that in Turkey, especially given where the economy stands. So he wants to create, Luke, in my view, a three-way race once again. He wants to force Akshaner and maybe other smaller right-wing parties, Baba Johns and Davutoglu's parties, to abandon the opposition block and run as a third pole. Erdogan loses in a two-way race, wins in a three-way race. I think that's his goal going forward.
1: Uh, Let me tell you what worries me about the direction I could possibly see Turkish politics going in. I think that, as we've been talking about, there is this majority that could quite conceivably win an election in Turkey right now. So, but what happens if Erdogan decides not to go? I mean, he played with this, with the mayorals. It didn't work out for him, but there wasn't as much at stake in the mayors. It wasn't his career. And as you said earlier, his concerns about possible prosecution. So is this a is this a real concern that I should be having or is it um, am I being a bit paranoid?
0: I think it's a real concern there's a very high possibility that Erdogan uh, might decide to go for elections thinking he'll win as happened in Istanbul in 2019 and that the electorate might humble him notwithstanding Erdogan's control of institutions and it's very likely that if that happens Erdogan will pull what I, it's, uh, what i call Erdogan will do what I call uh, pulling a trump. He will say, oh, I didn't lose the elections. They were rigged. He'll call his uh, supporters to the streets. And so there's a a high chance of uh, political instability, uh, you know, driven by Erdogan's agenda to stay in power by hook or by crook. And uh, what happens then is a complete, uh, you know, uh, unknown to me. Turkey has never seen this. Turkey has never seen a leader not accept defeat. Turkey has had dozens of peaceful transitions of power through the ballot box. Um, Leaders... uh, You know, even when they most fear persecution, uh, including Yilmaz and Chiller in the 1990s, uh, never uh, uh, did not not, not never accept uh, defeat. So it would be a a complete, uh, you know, can of worms that Erdogan would open up. Um, It's very likely that Erdogan might therefore decide to hold elections at a time of his picking when his popularity has peaked. I think that would take at least a year from today. Uh, So hoping that he will deliver strong growth which is where the foreign policy part of the puzzle comes in you know he has notwithstanding Erdogan's efforts to turn Turkey's face to the Middle East and and you know uh, bring Islam to the centerfold of society there's a fact Turkey's economy is completely integrated to the European economy because of customs union that goes back to 1995 and as a resource poor country Turkey needs financial inflows to grow so Erdogan needs Europe and the United States but he also needs Russia avoid economic and trade sanctions that could undermine his growth uh, domestically, especially if they're tourism sanctions, given that Russians are number one arrivals to Turkey, if they were before COVID. They would be again after COVID, of course, the pandemic. And he also has to, Erdogan, uh, cultivate China because uh, I think he's uh, trying to break ground with this massive project called Canal Istanbul,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is, uh, you know, there's a big debate over it uh, in terms of environmental damage. In fact, uh, if I can use this as a sidebar, I think that... Uh, You know, the greatest part of Erdogan's notorious legacy in Turkey is going to be environmental degradation and damage. And the canal would do that to Istanbul's forests. But he's going to want to he wants to break ground with it because he knows that a mega project will jumpstart the economy, will add one or two percent points of growth. And only the Chinese are willing to invest in this, apparently. So he's got to cultivate good uh, relationships with Turkey's east, China, north Russia and West EU and U.S., Uh, So he might, if he has strong growth, decide to go for elections or pressing the opposition further. So at that point, it's really a question of how effective the opposition is organized, whether they can be so good at preventing rigging. I think they will be. I think that Erdogan maybe can rig elections by half a point, but not by five or 10 points, if that's what the margin is like. So there's a high possibility that even in this scenario, he might be humbled by the electorate and he might pull a Trump. And that point, since I'm in Washington, I'm also looking at things from the U.S. perspective. It'd be impossible for the Biden administration, after what transpired in the U.S. in January this year, to turn its head the other way if Erdogan pulls a Trump. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to be a point of reckoning for Biden administration. Uh, uh, Washington will pick democracy and not Erdogan, which is a huge, huge shift from earlier policies where the view from Washington was always, Turkey's a strategic ally. We deal with whoever is on top. Yes, of course, democracy is important, but at this stage, I think it's going to have a more pivotal role in U.S. policy towards certain.
1: Yeah, I I, I worry that some of the, the noise you hear coming out of the American rights are going to be repeated by authoritarians around the world uh, in the next few years. And that there's, there's quite a bit of irreparable damage being done to democracies that won't be felt in America, but will be felt in other countries more keenly. Um, I want to touch on that environmental point because I think that's a really interesting one. I feel that that's uh, almost an unguarded flank for Erdogan. It's ground he's not used to defending himself on, but just but there's also been this drumbeat of like environmental stories. I mean, as we speak there's quite severe wildfires that this year the Marmara Sea became polluted by um, sea mucilage and there are just constant stories about people going out walking and finding like a valley full of dumped asbestos. Um, do you think that that's actually going to be an issue um, that could hurt Erdogan over the next few years? Or is, that, is, it, is, it, is it sort of interesting but not relevant?
0: No, I think it's interesting. I think, Luke, there are two issues where Erdogan faces a non-partisan opposition uh, regarding the environment and regarding uh, gender equality. Uh, I think on these two issues, there's consensus across Turkish society, you know, uh, 60, 70 percent, even more opposed Turkey withdrawing from Istanbul Convention that was meant to provide violence against women uh, and other sexual and sexual minorities. And similarly, uh, uh, you know, overwhelming majorities also oppose Canal Istanbul, you know, 70, 80 mm-hmm. percent regardless, depending on which poll you look at. So I think that Erdogan, uh, for the opposition environment and gender equality are two uh, issues where they can build a coalition including with Erdogan voters. And I think those are the unguarded flanks of Erdogan's kind of ideological domination of Turkey. So uh, good luck to him. I think if he tries to brush these under the carpet, uh, I was thinking earlier about Erdogan's legacy because now we're at a point of that, uh, his popularity is not gonna go back to what it used to be. And it's uh, very hard for him to stay in power through democratic means. And I don't think his legacy is going to be about Islam anymore. I think his legacy is going to be about the degradation of the environment under his rule, and also increasingly uh, sloppy public administration. Uh, it's just fascinating to me to see that Turkey, a country that has really good kind of public administration system, is suffering from remiss public administration, whether it's their inability to fight forest fires or uh, the way uh, lockdowns during COVID were mismanaged, uh, erratic lockdown schedules announced last minute. You live in Turkey, you probably saw this. People mm-hmm. were not sure if they could go to the Baker's. If they could, what days? Uh, very chaotic. And I think those to me are are signs of, uh, you know, remiss public administration. So the, it's not going to be the ideology, but it's going to be more, you know, managing environment and managing uh, public administration that are going to be the hallmarks of uh, the last era
1: of Erdogan years in Turkey. It, it keeps reminding me how important those mayoral elections really were because with all of that stuff it gives the opposition a chance to have a better record of administration on environmental policy. I mean, I live here in Istanbul, right, and I'm bombarded by messages from Ibebe about, um, sorry, the Istanbul municipality, of showing, you know, um, people with spades making a new park or something like that. And also, the the mayor's been pretty successful in getting investment from European capitals, and it's, if he does decide to run against Erdogan, we don't know. But if he does, he's going to have a a record of success, for, to give a direct comparison, which the previous candidate didn't really have.
0: That's correct. Uh, you could argue that what made Erdogan a nationally known figure uh, was uh, his uh, you know uh, uh, term as Istanbul's mayor in 1990s, when uh, he really cleaned up Istanbul. Ran it well. I, was raised in Istanbul, Mm -hmm. I lived in Istanbul at the time, the city was collapsing under its uh, mayor who preceded Erdogan. Public services uh, as basic as water were not available and uh, the city was collapsing under the burden of population boom. Erdogan did a phenomenal job cleaning it up, improving services, and that's what made him presidential in the eyes of the public. So I think Mayor Mamul has a real chance if he can establish himself as that person who delivers good governance, and also keeps on to his strategy of radical love, you know, reaching out to Erdogan's base but ignoring Erdogan. Uh, Erdogan, of course, can cut his financial lifelines because the mayor relies on um, Ankara government run by Erdogan uh, for two-thirds of the city's budget. But as you mentioned, European banks uh, have been quite generous in, in providing uh, credit to Istanbul uh, so that the mayor can finish some of these waiting um, uh, metro line projects. They're very important. I would say Istanbul's Number one for its citizens is uh, transportation, getting around uh, a city of 15 million people on two continents. You need to have a really good public transportation system. So I think if the mayor can deliver two, three, four new metro lines by the time of the next elections, he'll probably win. If he can't, it would be difficult for him to compete with Erdogan. And it looks so far that he's on track for that. So it will be interesting to watch. I think the nitty-gritty story of Turkish politics is going to be how many metro lines the mayor opens up in the next three years because that will probably determine to what extent his support is going to go go up uh, in the elections
1: i was just thinking there there's a there's a real element of tragedy to Erdogan's career in some ways because he comes into office as you said as the new mayor of istanbul and one of the one of his first achievements is sort of cleaning up the halic and sort of and now in, in 2021 he's president and the whole marmara sea is polluted it, it, it's yeah it's sad when you think of it like that It's correct, Uh, I would say, uh, you know,
0: we never thought an environment would be such a big issue in Turkey, but uh, in addition to the environment, I think uh, the uh, degradation of the cities, but also Turkey's cultural heritage in general is going to be a part of Erdogan's uh, kind of notorious legacy. You know, it's ironic because this is a party, Erdogan's movement that has come to power uh, saying that it will embrace Turkey's Ottoman heritage, but it's a party that has probably done most damage physically, to Turkey's Ottoman heritage. I was recently in Istanbul. I love the city. I'm a big fan of its mosques and hills. And I went to Üsküdar Square on the Anatolian side. This is probably one of Istanbul's most picturesque Ottoman-era squares. Mm-hmm. You know, it had uh, paved, uh, uh, was paved with stones and was surrounded by beautiful mosques. And uh, I went to the square. It was paved with cement. And there was a huge uh, ventilation shaft for the metro station in the middle of it. And to me, that's more damage to Istanbul's built Ottoman legacy than anybody could imagine. And ironic that the damage comes under the party that said that it was going to embrace that legacy. So I, I wonder sometimes to what extent uh, that's going to be part of uh, Erdogan's positive legacy going forward. And to what extent he's going to be remembered you know, as the person under whom Istanbul lost much of its Ottoman charm, uh, which has now been isolated to a few pockets here and there.
1: Okay so thinking forward to another possible future I realize this is put maybe more or more speculative than you would like but I was I've been thinking about the career of um, Menderes a lot recently and the sort of the way he died and his the sh- sort of the shady circumstances surrounding um his execution and the way that Menderes was seen to be tried and executed after the after he was taken out of power. It set the seeds of the resentment that would eventually lead, I think, really, it's not unreasonable to say that a lot of that would feed into the Erdogan administration so many years later. After... Oh, uh, if, hmm? yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. So ahead. when, if Erdogan loses an election, as you mentioned earlier, there's going to be a feeling amongst a lot of people that there's going to want to be justice for things that happened during his administration. But I think that that runs the risk of looking like revenge to supporters of the president. And we could very much end up in just setting the cycle going again. How do you think a new opposition government, if they win, should proceed with, yeah, um, with sort of sorting out
0: the baggage? I could not agree more. I think that uh, notwithstanding uh, You know, the legacy of the Erdogan years, uh, the crackdowns, uh, 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 people arrested and kept in jail for years, lives ruined. Opposition has to come up with a graceful exit strategy for Erdogan uh, uh, if uh, they were to win the election. It looks like they are going to win. That graceful exit, in my view, has to uh, include elements of uh, immunity to Erdogan, his family, his administration. I know this is a very controversial topic in Turkey. There's a lot of anger on both sides. It's a completely polarized political environment. But I think for Turkey to move forward, it needs to kind of have a cool-off period after the Erdogan era, where Erdogan to fall from power, and that has to include a commitment by the opposition if it looks like they're going to win or if they have just won and Erdogan is going to you know, declare fraud in order to steal his thunder. They have to basically tell his base, you know, this is not a... Uh, Dog eat dog world. This is not Hunger Games. I know it's not about revenge. It's about moving forward. Uh, so sometimes I'm uh, more optimistic about that possibility emerging. I think Luke that uh, the debate in Turkey uh, from the time of first the free and fair elections 1950, I'd say roughly around the 1980 coup, was whether democracy paired with American capitalism was the best form of governance. The left objected to that, and there was civil war-like fighting on the streets in mm-hmm. 1970s by people who said, we don't want capitalism, we don't want democracy. That ended with the 1980 coup, uh, forcefully, unfortunately so. And the next debate, I think, became after 1980. Now that everybody agreed, most everyone agreed democracy is the best form of government, that people did not agree that they want the same rights and liberties they had for their opposition. So Turkey was kind of political tribes. You had secularists, Islamists, Kurdish nationalists, Turkish nationalists. They all opposed each other. They said, no, I want rights for my own group. I don't. I deny rights to your group. So I wonder if the takeaway of the Erdogan years, you know, 20 years after Erdogan has been in power and Erdogan has served secularists formerly in charge their own bitter medicine, if uh, they'll take this medicine uh, in the right place and they'll basically say, look, a democracy doesn't work if you deny your opposition the rights and liberties you have. So to the extent that you have consensus where uh, different political parties and factions agree that you know this should not be another round of persecutions uh, because that's how the Erdogan era is seen as persecution of the secularist elites. Uh, that this, to the extent that this is not seen as another round of persecutions, I think Turkey can move forward. I'm hopeful, I guess, because I think that many people in Turkey have taken this lesson from the Erdogan era that maybe this time the country can move forward. Why am I hopeful? The alliance that we are seeing challenging Erdogan was inconceivable five, five years ago that you would have a Turkish nationalist party and the Kurdish Nationalist Party in the same block with the Secularist Party and the Political Islamist Party. You know, The four tribes of Turkey have come together in an alliance to vote Erdogan out, and that those four tribes in the past hated each other, would not even sit down together for a conversation. Now they're actually in an informal as it be alliance trying to vote him out. So is, is it ironically Erdogan's autocratic rule that has forced Turkey's political tribes to agree that yes, they're different, but they should not deny rights to each other. And if that's the case, then I'm hoping that we're going to have a consensus in the post-Erdogan era, where Turkey will into the third phase of its democracy journey. If the first phase was 1950 to 1980, where the debate was whether democracy was the best form, if the second phase was, yes, it's the best form, but only for my tribe, the third phase will be, it's the best form for everyone. So I'm hoping we're gonna get there.
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. Um, My very last question for you, in your book, you, um, you make the case, rightly, that the way that European and American leaders approach Erdogan has to be very careful. Because if they get into sort of public feuds with him, it's very easy for him to spin that as, oh, the West hates us. Europe and America hates us, you can only trust me. So how do you think that um, European and American leaders should approach Erdogan over the next few years?
0: I think that just as the opposition has learned its lesson that to engage and defeat a nativist populist leader, you should avoid fighting him on nativist populist territory and instead reach out to his base and not target the leader. I think that Turkey's Western allies... For the most part, too, have learned a similar lesson. You know, earlier they would bash Erdogan on any policy, and Erdogan would take us to his base and say, "You see, I was right. They hate us. They don't want Turkey to be great and Muslims to rise again. Only I can do that. That's why they're, that's why they're attacking me." Uh, I think that Turkey's Western allies, U.S. and Germany and others, have learned this lesson, and they've been very quiet regarding Erdogan's transgressions. For instance, when he converted Ayasofya to a mosque. The criticism was quite muted, uh, and I think Erdogan was not able to use that to mobilize his base. So I would say uh, Turkey's Western allies, too, have to embrace the policy of radical love, ignoring Erdogan, but reaching out to electorates that vote for him and that do not vote for him, and really reaching out to the Turkish public uh, more so than uh, dealing with the government. And there are exceptions, of course. I think uh, Greece, because of its proximity to Turkey, uh, often criticizes Erdogan quite viscerally, And I think until recently, Macron, Mm -hmm. uh, because of the increasing tensions between Turkey and France or East Med and Libya, where the two countries were fighting on different sides of the civil war, but also driven by Macron's own agenda. He doesn't want to be outflanked by Le Pen's right-wing movement. Uh, He was also quite critical. But I think we're also seeing that the French are now embracing uh, perhaps what I would call radical love. So uh, I think uh, going forward, uh, Erdogan does not have the ability anymore to take Western uh, European and American criticism of his policies, and to reframe these as attacks on Turkey and Muslims. So, to the extent that uh, you know, public diplomacy, policy, attitude, and outreach of Turkey's European and, and NATO allies is fine-tuned to be criticizing Erdogan, but not the Turkish government. Uh, sorry, not the Turkish state or Turkish uh, 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 citizenry. I think that uh, that public diplomacy uh, outreach uh, can be
1: considered successful. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, just to, to close us off, beyond your books, um, what what would you recommend for some further reading to the audience?
0: Yeah, uh, I love Jenny White's books. Uh, she's oh, a great yeah. author and also a novelist. Uh, she's she got a new comic Fiction great. Uh, yeah, yeah. Very, very good. Uh, definitely a, a, a go-to person uh, in terms of books. Uh, I, I would also recommend uh, Sinan Nguyen's uh, 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 and Asla, I did touch upon analysis on Turkey. They're both columnists. They write frequently for think tanks and international media.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for joining me. It's been very interesting. Thank
0: you, Luke. Thanks for hosting me. Uh, and I really appreciate uh, that you hosted me today. Thanks.
1: All right.